Welcome to Green Apple Pod, for people who want to think about education a little bit differently. I'm Jessica Enderlin-Natsum, a public school teacher and PhD candidate in education policy. I've spent nearly a decade observing and investigating how to make education the thing that's going to make our whole society happier and healthier. Now, I'm fighting to make that our reality. Are you new here? If so, I'm glad you're here. But just so you know, this series makes way more sense if you listen to the episodes in order. You can find the first episode, COVID and Teacher Retention, and get started there to get the full story. We'll be right here waiting for you when you get back. It's hard to go a day without hearing about schools and teachers on the news or in conversation. Did you hear about the latest school board meeting? They're trying to ban this book. What about the petition for cameras and microphones in classrooms so we can see what they're teaching all the time? And oh my gosh, don't even get me started on the masks. If you're a teacher, you're probably hearing all of these conversations as well as some others within the hallways. Did you hear the English teacher isn't coming back next year? Yeah, she got a job online. Or the board minutes just got released from last night. Look how many school bus drivers resigned last month. There's a lot of controversy going on concerning schools right now. But all of that is for naught if we don't find some way to make sure that we still have people who are willing to work in our schools when we start again next year. To be clear, as I've said many times, this isn't a new problem. As we've heard over the past two episodes, teacher attrition has been an issue for decades, especially in more diverse schools, rural schools, low-income schools, and for teachers with special education or STEM licenses or teachers of color. Essentially, the kids in schools that need the most support are the ones that are going to have the hardest time getting high-quality teachers. We've heard from researchers who study this phenomenon. We've heard from a few teachers who left the classroom during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, we're going to hear it from a different angle. What about the school leaders who are desperately trying to fill classrooms with high-qualified, enthusiastic teachers for their students? Then we'll hear from yet another angle. Two teachers who want to teach, but ultimately can't. Welcome to episode three of Green Apple Pod, the teacher attrition vortex. The whole point of this project is to find a way to blend stories and research, unique experiences, and cold hard facts. We've heard a lot of statistics over the past two episodes. So today, let's hear stories. We know 44% of teachers leave within five years. We covered that all in last episode. But what does it look like from the other side, the principals and district leaders who are searching for qualified candidates to work in their buildings? How do you find a certified math teacher when you live over 100 miles away from the nearest university in a town of 4,000 people? What do you do when you lose a staff member mid-year and there's no one in your pool of subs with a license to fill in full-time? It's even more complex than this, unfortunately. Losing teachers isn't just an inconvenient hiring spree. It's expensive. One study by the Learning Policy Institute found that districts invest, on average, $20,000 for each new hire. And if that new hire leaves before they commit two years of service to your school, the district has most likely lost money on the investment. If you thought HR and finance were the only issues, oops, sorry, no. (laughs) There's also the kids, you know, the students that the teachers teach. What's the impact on them when they attend a school that struggles to retain teachers? How is their learning affected by a revolving door of educators? 
That assumes that certified educators are walking through the door. In reality, some kids can go months, even years at a time, being taught by long-term substitutes instead of trained and licensed teachers in the areas where attrition is particularly bad. And surprise, this predominantly affects disadvantaged students. One report by the Civil Rights Office found that students of color are four times more likely to be taught by uncertified teachers. Now imagine you're a principal or a district leader. Clearly, you want to prevent all of these things, the last-minute hiring rushes, the extra spending on the new hires, the kids in classrooms without high-quality teachers, but how do you make that a reality? What does it take? This is where I introduce you to Monica. My name is Monica McMurray, and I am currently the Retention and Recruitment Director for the Pine Bluff School District. I have 25 years of experience in education, and 18 of those years have been in leadership, ranging anywhere from assistant principal to interim superintendent. Monica actually works in a school district not far from where I grew up. In fact, it's where my mom grew up. It's a town that once thrived with infrastructure and manufacturing jobs, but sometime in the 70s, 80s, it started to decline. The population has since started shrinking, but it's still the 10th largest city in the state. It's the home of an HBCU, and it's got about 4,000 kids enrolled in the local school district. Pamela School District is a district that is about 97, 98% African-American majority uh, population. And um, we are comprised of nine schools now that we have annexed Dollarway schools into our district. We have about 345 or so uh, class, I'm sorry, certified staff. And of that number, about 103 teachers are non-traditional. And so um, that's, you know, a third if you will, of our workforce. You know, you, you get into the compromising of curriculum when you have that many teachers who are not licensed. And so that's another story. But um, the district basically um, serves as one of the largest of three districts in our Jefferson City area. We have Whitehall School District, we have Watson Chapel School District, and of course, uh, Pablo schools. And then we have two charter schools, Lighthouse and Friendship. Mm-hmm. So count those, it'd be more than three. We have the majority of uh, student population, um, you know, and this particular district was once the flagship of the districts in this Jefferson uh, County area. And so with, um, you know, the great exodus of families leaving the area, you know, it just... Um, kind of change the dynamics and the demographics, if you will, um, of our school district as we now know it. When Monica mentions non-traditional, those are teachers or teacher candidates who didn't go through a bachelor's degree program to get a teaching license. Non-traditionally licensed or alternatively certified, alternatively licensed teachers, they all mean the same thing. They're typically people who have graduated college and worked somewhere else for a while, but they transition back into teaching through residency programs, fast-track certifications, MAT programs, Teach for America, stuff like that. And at Monica's school, there are a lot of them. Nearly a third of the certified teaching staff is non-traditional. So this isn't necessarily a bad or a good thing. Research is still kind of out on that. 
But having to rely on so many teachers who are in the process of getting certified and not already certified is a really common symptom of a high-need school. So Monica's work in Pine Bluff is twofold. She recruits teachers, whether through the pipeline of two nearby universities or by finding non-traditional teachers who are willing to work while getting licensed. And then she's got to retain them. She's got to keep those who are already there employed. Because at the end of the day, not having enough teachers hurts kids, and Monica is determined to get certified teachers in classrooms for her kids. So one thing that, um, and I know this is obvious to people like you and me, but for people who may be listening, um, parents, other stakeholders who may not be as familiar with a school, maybe their last experience with a school was when they attended one at one time. What is the impact of a teacher retention crisis and maybe having to have fewer experienced teachers than a more veteran teaching staff? How does that affect student learning? Well, I mean, you know, it it is what it is. It's overwhelming. Uh, That is the challenge. And because of that root cause being uh, not having enough certified teachers, um, student achievement is ultimately challenged uh, because with those non-traditional workforce having to learn their content prepare to test themselves and actually teaching while they're learning. So you have this, you know, uh, this minutia of andragogy, you know, pedagogy, methodology, and all of those things working together and sometimes against one another, uh, you know, and, and it does, it, it poses a unique challenge um, for our workforce and our children do uh, tend to suffer because Uh, When I first came back in July and looking at all of our schools that I'm working with and just really doing an analysis of where my non-traditional workforce is placed, where they're housed in each school. And I came up with a gruesome reality that when I did the matrix and I looked at each position by name, by school, by grade, of every teacher that I am working with relative to standard licensure, I came to this gruesome reality that a child literally can matriculate grades K through 12 without having one certified teacher. And, you know, and I I, I just, you know, it was a, a wow moment for me. Uh, but then too, it also allowed me to really see uh, the depth of the work that needs to be done uh, through this office. So um, that was the propeller, if you will, you know, of hitting the ground running literally days within being in office in this position, you know. Um, so academic performance, sure, it, it greatly affects, you know, students, you know, just because our non-traditional workforce, they're not familiar with effective teaching practices. They're not familiar with what instructional strategies are in the classroom. So this is the learning, you know, for them, you know, in addition to having to prepare for a test. So it really just um, compounds uh, the issues that our students face relative to academic um, improvement. Did you catch that? A child can literally get all the way through a district like Pine Bluff and go all the way kindergarten through 12th grade without a single licensed teacher. And before you say, whoa, Jessica, that's extreme. 
Um, yes, it is. That's the point. And Pine Bluff isn't alone. This happens all over the country in high-needs districts that struggle to recruit and retain licensed teachers. But Monica is trying to be strategic about how she addresses that shortage. She's revamping policies and procedures to try to hire teachers earlier, before they commit to other districts or other towns. She's also trying to work directly with local universities for recruitment, as well as working on the systemic issues that may keep teachers out of the classroom. Yes, with both you know, with, with the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, in addition to CR, I do work directly with their education departments. We have monthly meetings and um, we address, you know, our challenges and we walk away with next steps of things that we would do associated, you know, around policy, um, current practice, past practice, the things that we're doing well, things that we can do differently. Uh, and just thinking, you know, about more innovative ways, you know, to make this challenge less of a challenge. I'll give an example. We were um, addressing some issues that we were having around um, this, this teacher workforce, uh, you know, not being certified and how we are having to, on the college level, require or some students are moving from the educational pathway because they cannot pass the praxis exam. Mm -hmm. so they're, you know, declaring a non-teaching major because they can only go so far, you know, with education. You know, the college had it to where the students would be required to take their test, I think, around their junior year and their senior year. So uh, we were able from that conversation to rethink that practice and to push that testing expectation down to their sophomore year, and they were able to do that. Mm -hmm. So that way it give that student a little bit more time to test and perhaps prepare again, you know, in the event that they don't pass the first time. With CR, we're, they did communicate to us in one meeting that they were looking at how students who are interested, you know, uh, coming into their institution, uh, wanting to be an educator, uh, they can take their prerequisite courses, you know, at CR, and then there's a pathway created for them to laterally enroll at the college of the university to get that teaching degree. Mm -hmm. So they're really working on that as we speak. Uh, so, you know, there are some things that have been really great, you know, that have come out of our conversations and our meetings. So as we meet, you know, monthly, we're very intentional about addressing our challenges. Um, I had written a waiver because there's such a challenge for us having teachers and, and, and substitutes. You know, we wrote a waiver to where, to the State Department asking basically for students who are in their final year uh, of the education program at the university, if they can come into, you know, our workforce where there's a need and rather than not getting paid, allow that to serve as student teaching and for pay. And so of course the State Department would have had to approve such a waiver. And um, as I understand, there are some districts across the state uh, that have written a waiver and are currently doing that. Um, we have not uh, uh, hit the finalization of that process being complete, but we des definitely uh, have the wa waiver written a few things to unpack from Monica's work with the universities. One, licensure tests. We'll talk more about this later in the episode, but for those who think getting licensed to become a teacher is easy, 
stop, it's not. It's not crafts and finger painting. It's the science of reading. It's tests on history and math. It's portfolios. It's student teaching. It's a ton of stuff. And all of those things can be barriers to getting teachers into the classroom. In the state of Arkansas, you have to pass at least five multiple choice exams to get licensed as an elementary teacher. Those tests are expensive and they're not easy. Monica's strong relationship with the local educator prep programs have helped her identify some of the problems with testing. Like if they take it later in their college years, they may give up if they can't pass. Whereas if they move them earlier in their sequence, then they can have more strategies to help them, they can schedule the test earlier and give the students an extra chance to pass. Now, another big issue is pay. Student teaching ain't free. Typically, when you're enrolled in a teacher prep program, you pay tuition. And student teaching is technically a class. Uh, yeah, it's a class, which means a student teacher literally pays money to go teach in a classroom. And we wonder why we have a shortage. Now, as we realize that may not be the best way to convince people to come work in schools, we have things like Monica's waiver, which would let her hire senior year student teachers and actually pay them for their work, which gets someone who is trained and almost done with their certification into the classroom. Now, these solutions are starting to get closer to the root of the problem. They're getting more teachers, they're putting more teachers in front of kids, but even then, you still have to find people who want to be in those classrooms with those kids. And sometimes that's tough. Really, really tough. I don't know if you know the number off the top of your head or if you're comfortable giving an estimate, but when you first started the job last summer, do you know about how many vacancies your school district had? <laughs> well, when I came, we had a little, a little over 40, 50 positions. Mm -hmm. Classic that, or certified positions? Certified positions, uh-huh. Mm -hmm. um, and so we already had a, a, about that same number or more of teachers who uh, were entering into their second year um, with the district, you know, on a pathway because of being non-licensed. So uh, we currently have a total workforce of about 100 or so non-traditional teachers. Mm -hmm. Do you know about how many vacancies you have now? Currently, we have about, I would say, six vacancies now between the nine schools. Hey, finding 45 teachers in that short period of time, that's impressive, though. So, Well, I tell you, you know, all of the positions were not filled relative to how it's posted as a teacher vacancy. We were very creative in my working with the principals, giving them options because my past uh, uh, experience has been building level principal, you know, uh, high school, middle school, junior high school, and working with elementary schools. So I had to have a lot of conversations with principals relative to their needs. And so, for example, uh, if a teacher had three positions, you know, in the elementary, uh, on the elementary campus, I showed them ways that they could create their master schedule to where if one particular grade band had a certain number of students, we would dissolve that class and push those kids into those existing classrooms. So that really helped a lot of our need, you know, because um, technically we're overstaffed mm -hmm. uh, when you look at student number district-wide, mm -hmm. but we're staffing according to buildings, you know, rather than student numbers. So eventually 
the conversation will happen where, you know, because we've annexed with Dollaway, we still um, have to have those conversations around because our number of students, you know, is what it is. This is the number of staff that we'll need. So closing buildings, reconfiguring schools, that's imminent. Yeah. You know, that alone will help a lot of our problems, you know, from being as magnified as it has been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're creative and having that, you know, that background building level leadership experience just kind of helped us, you know, tackle some of those challenges. Yeah. But with that consolidation, did that come with dramatically increased class sizes for some teachers or did most it just ended up maybe two or three extra kids in their class? No, it, it didn't affect our teachers. And, and, you know, and we did that with numbers in mind. Yeah. It did not affect our classes to where, you know, students went beyond, you know, 23 uh, children in a class, you know, okay. and, and that's still in some cases on the high end as some, you know, school districts, you know, have lower numbers in that, you know, lower grade level. But for us, you know, uh, having to, you know, my philosophy as, you know, um, an ex-principal, I would always say to my staff that a sick teacher is better than a well sub. So rather than getting a long-term sub in a classroom over students, we wanted them in a class where we would have a certified teacher in that sustainability because we want the children educated. Yes. You know, we were really, you know, uh, intentional about doing all of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but either way, I mean, being able to get creative and make sure that all but six classes have a teacher, whether provisionally certified or fully certified, I think that's extremely impressive. Monica's been in this work for over 25 years. She's a former principal. She's had time to learn these skills and fill in these gaps in classrooms and make sure there are teachers there for kids. She brought down the number of vacancies significantly by reorganizing and redistributing master schedules. Ultimately, that did bring down the actual number of vacancies that had to be filled, but there were still a few vacancies and there's still a smaller pool of staff to cover all of the classrooms. That means fewer people to share the load. And there are still six classrooms who don't have any teachers who are certified. That means that depending on whether they're elementary or secondary, Let's say an elementary teacher has 25 kids, a secondary teacher has 100, 150 on their roster. That means that anywhere between 130 to 600 kids are missing at least one teacher. That's a problem. Now today, Monica feels fortunate to be able to get the teacher she has and to be in a position where she can work on the systemic issues that contribute to clogs in the teacher supply pipeline. But she's worked in other, more rural districts, and she's seen what it was like when you literally had to go door to door to find teachers. She says that's what it was like back in Helena. I asked Monica what it was like trying to retain teachers in more rural areas back in her principal days. She told me about her work in Helena, Arkansas, a town on the Arkansas-Mississippi border with its own share of disadvantages in terms of staffing schools. Monica was excellent at finding teachers to fill classrooms, but often once they got there, it was very hard to keep them there. When you were a principal or an assistant principal at other schools, were reasons for leaving similar? Um, like you've seen a good snapshot across the state. And so when you're, you know, having a conversation with a teacher who's not coming back, what do they say to you? Well, I, I can say this. Um, yes, across the state, you know, in some areas, and, and I would venture to say that, 
you know, districts that are in the Delta area, um, in the smaller districts, you know, where uh, it's just difficult to um, have a husband and wife to come and settle in an area where one, the schools aren't performing well, they have children and the industry does not accommodate, you know, um, a husband and wife who are not of the same profession. You know, I was just blessed over the years that my husband, you know, is a pharmacist. So wherever there's a Walmart and wherever there's a school district, we were able to, you know, be mobile if we wanted to be. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I think about my principalship, you know, in a school district that literally was about three miles across, you know, the state line into, into the state of Mississippi, you know, with a casino right across the bridge, you know, it was very um, challenging you know, for us to keep uh, teachers largely because the industry just did not accommodate, you know, a, a family, you know, that had working people that were in, that were professional people. Mm -hmm. So, and, and, and I would venture to say that, you know, other, other areas would, you know, have some of those same challenges. But that's where I became really knowledgeable of the different moving parts to how I could get certified teachers in my building, how I could, you know, think of creative, creative ways, you know, to have those people who I believe were the best fit for my children, you know, and um, specifically I was able to, you know, work with our international recruitment agencies where I was able to bring teachers over from India you know, to teach my math courses, you know, um, I was able to work with our human resources department, you know, around looking at our, at that time, we were really heavily reliant upon Teach for America. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I went after those candidates. I went to those in services and I recruited and, you know, um, being from that area, you know, as a graduate myself, I was able as a principal to do things that you know, principals who were not from that area would, you know, ordinarily be allowed to do. So I was considered a maverick at that time, you know, because I did whatever was necessary. Mm -hmm. um, and necessity came around student achievement, you know, and that's where I believe I was given the green light. I had successes, you know, as a principal. And um, I can say, though, that you have to be intentional when it comes to addressing those challenges you know, and you have to be a part of that recruitment process as a building principal. It can't just be, you know, from the central office. Now, you know, all things have protocol, but, you know, largely speaking, wherever you are as a building level leader, you're at work all the time, you know? And so even when you're in the community, you're recruiting. Mm -hmm. And so that's just how I, you know, that, that was just, the way I existed during that time. And, and so for me, once I was able to address my shortage, I didn't have a problem during my tenure there because I put the right people in place during that time, you know, um, but it was, it was work that, you know, was grueling, but it was work that was intentional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are so many good points you made there. It's, it's not necessarily conducive for a family. At the time, I was engaged, getting married. 
And it wasn't even something I could consider with what my husband's job is. I was just like, well, I teach, he does that. We have to go there because he can't do that here. And that's a factor that compounds on itself even more when you consider like, well, I've got debt. And with this school, I'll only make enough money to pay it off in like 20 years. I want to have kids. Um, there's not a good daycare around here that I can find. There's this, that, and the other. And it's just, it, it is this vortex of issues for recruitment where you have to do, just like you said, be a maverick and get creative and find who's already there. It's true. Part of the reason I left my first job, a little town of 4,000 people, was for family. My husband couldn't move where I was. There wasn't a job for him. We knew we would want kids someday. What would childcare look like? What amenities would be there to enrich afternoons and weekends? The pickings were slim. So I took my shiny new license, and I left. And I'm not the only one who has done this. This is a problem lots of rural school districts face, but how do you fix it? It's not like one school district can bring in a fun downtown, museums, parks, entertainment, childcare, and all the other amenities that young families are looking for. Once again, this is a whole nother rabbit hole we could dive down, but we've got to move on. But for the record, you're going to hear more about this a little bit later. And and you're right. And and, and really, um, as I think about some of the things that I did, you know, I, I went out and, you know, again, being a graduate of that district, you know, and, and the community being so small, I literally, you know, laughing now uh, about it, but I literally remember physically going to some of the retired teachers, you know, homes, you know, that I remember were teachers were my teachers, you know, and, and ringing doorbells and knocking on doors and, you know, and having that conversation, you know, and because they remember, you know, me then and, and, and know the work that, you know, was before me, they wanted to be a part of the process. And so I I was able to get retired teachers to come back Mm -hmm. and to work with me doing this work. And I specifically targeted those teachers who had retired in the areas that were hard to feel, math, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, ELA. Monica's work is undeniably challenging and it's high stakes. If she can't find enough teachers, who's going to manage classrooms of 20-plus kids? She does everything she can to find teachers for her students, including reorganizing staffing and roles to minimize vacancies as much as possible, and knocking on the doors of retirees. But the bottom line is, some schools aren't so lucky. No amount of reshuffling and door knocking will get a certified teacher in a room in front of kids. Monica is about an hour away from the state capital. It's not completely rural. There are local universities to partner with, so on, so on, so on. But what about these rural areas with an even smaller pool of potential teachers, where the few who do start their leave soon after for more amenities to build families? What's even worse about this problem is that there are people out there who want to teach, who want to fill those spaces in those classrooms, who are enthusiastic and just want to do the best they can. But ultimately, they can't. We've all heard the phrase, those who can't, comma, teach. But what about those who can't teach, but want to teach? The sad reality is that there are lots of people out there who want to teach, but contrary to popular belief, not just anyone can sign up for a teaching license and get one in the mail next week. It takes time, it takes money, you have to pass tests, and if you're doing all of this while teaching at the same time, as many non-traditional licensure programs ask you to do, 
Then you have all the stress and time requirements of a full-time teacher on top of it. It's, it's not a walk in the park. But even then, there are plenty of teachers who try to make it happen. And for various reasons, they still can't teach. After three interviews with researchers and school leaders, I'm really excited to bring back the most important element of this podcast, teachers and their real-world experiences. Today, we're going to hear from two of them, one who got riffed or laid off, and another who has to keep shuffling workplaces due to issues with licensure. How has losing them hurt students, you may ask? Let's start with Bethany. Beth and I actually taught in the same school during my first year of teaching, her second year of teaching. She was a mentor to me for learning about my students, building relationships with them, and basically held my head above the water in the first year of my career. However, she wasn't native to Arkansas. So, I mean, living, I had never lived in the Deep South before, so um, I grew up in a pretty upper middle class community in Ohio, very sheltered for a lot of people. My parents did a really good job of making sure that we had um, volunteer experience, we were exposed to things in the world, but there's still a huge difference between living in suburban, upper middle class Ohio and incredibly rural, incredibly um, economically struggling rural Arkansas. I used to have sidewalks everywhere. There's not even sidewalks mm-hmm. in most of these towns. No. They're no, not walkable not. communities. No, absolutely not. And I mean, teaching was totally, and I can say that now that I've taught other places, teaching in Arkansas is a totally different game than teaching pretty much anywhere else. Um, I mean, it is this last time I checked, at least I could be, correct me if I'm wrong. It's the second to worst in the country in education. It's changed. The worst. It's changed recently. I think we've gone okay. up a couple spots, but we're still in like the bottom 10, okay. I believe. So it's still pretty low, but it's getting better. But mm-hmm. at the time when I was there, at least, it was the second to second to last. And our claim to fame was, we're not, hey, at least we're not Mississippi. I was teaching in, a, in an environment where so I had to teach them how to analyze text properly. I had to teach them how to have a proper class discussion, things like that. Some of their reading levels were kind of all over the place. Some of them were great. Some of them had parents who had just been on them their whole life and like knew what they were doing. It was great. There were other kids that their parents, it was clear they didn't really care, at least not about that part of their lives. They were like, they'll be fine kind of thing. I think the first year was honestly, it, it, similarly to training, I keep saying it was one of the hardest years of my life. When you are 22 and you are living in Arkansas and there is nothing around you, what do you and your friends do who are also all Teach for America teachers, most of them in their first year of teaching? You drink. Like, you just do. Like, I will say that I think my first year of teaching, I wasn't, like, an alcoholic, but I was drinking more than I ever did. And a lot of it was coping. Like, it really, and it's not healthy, but it was that, and it was, it was emotionally, like, you're on high alert all the time. It felt almost like, it's like teaching when you don't know what you're doing in that first year when you're just trying everything you can to keep it together and figure out how to interact with students, what they need from you, how to give it to them. Um, my mom told me that essentially I would come home and she was like, you, it was like you had this shell on you and you didn't know how to drop it and you didn't know how to take away this edge that you've developed to get through teaching. And to get through that first year, she's like, so you would come home and she's like, and you were just like rough. It was just being around you. You were short with people. You were just guarded. You were just like 
trying to keep everyone a little bit distant from you. And that's definitely reflective of the way I was feeling. I was feeling very like in my head, like, what do I need to do? How do I need to get through this? What do I need to do this, this, and this? No, I don't have time to go do that thing with you. Um, so that first year was very difficult. I was, the second year was a lot better, but um, a lot of that was because over the summer, I got into like exercising from home and found a way to healthily deal with the angst. Yeah. And I didn't know you during that first year. So, wow. I'm, and I mean, I remember it though. It's just like you say, like you get this shell on you. So then second year, you find ways to cope. Um, it's not as much trial by fire because you've at least done it one year before. Right. So it's now really fixing your problems at that yeah. point. It's tweaking so that things work at least sort of productively. And I definitely became a better teacher the more I taught. And I think that's for a lot of teachers. Hopefully, if you care enough, no one's going to get into teaching and survive teaching if you don't care. I'm sorry. Like, you're not. There's no one that gets into teaching or lasts in teaching that's like, I just don't care about this job. Because nobody would put up with it if they didn't care. Beth is describing what I've heard from so many other teachers. A tough, hard first year. And for so many reasons, the first time after college, we're really adults ourselves having to manage classrooms and student relationships and all the hardships that students carry themselves, having to make kids think that what we're learning today is cool. Have you ever tried to tell kids that photosynthesis is cool? It's not easy. The point is, the list of things to do goes on and on and on, and it's tough. But Beth stuck it out at that first school for two years, and she did amazing. She started a volleyball club for her students at her school. She taught literature units. She developed amazing relationships with her students. She still, to this day, gets graduation invitations in the mail. Most recently, she even got wedding invitations from one of her former students. Some of them are even starting to write her and ask for recommendations so that they can go and become teachers themselves. Basically, Beth's in this for all the right reasons. She does it for the kids. She loves the kids. She loves the work she does. And they're great kids. No, they are. They are wonderful kids. And like... I honestly, like, I just, the relationships that I had with them were, were very special. And there, and I did have good relationships at other schools with other kids. It's just, I, part of it is for me, especially is that they were my first babies. Mm-hmm. All my, as I tell my kids, all my kids are my babies. It just depends on how old the baby is, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you're still my baby. That's not going to go away. But those great relationships weren't enough to keep Beth in rural Arkansas. After her two years were up, it was time to go. And the reason is very familiar to what we talked about earlier. You get through the two years, you've got these relationships. It's stressful, but it gets better. You're learning. You said yourself, like, you feel like you're getting better. You're learning better. You're um, learning how to manage everything. And I mean, from me watching you as your roommate, and again, I was that baby teacher where everything was, you know, just on fire. But I was, I'll be honest, like watching you. And even now looking back, I'm like, you were for a second year teacher, especially doing great. And so I know also when you moved, um, that was tough. Um, I know you emotionally, because of the relationships with your students, that was hard. And that's supposed to be hard. But um, can you walk us through your decision to move? I think that the decision, really what it came down to, honestly, was I was looking at where I wanted to go, how I wanted to move forward in my life. And I knew that a lot of the opportunities I wanted to, at the time, wanted to move forward with weren't going to be where I was. As much as I loved the kids, as much as I loved um, my friends there. And it was a hard decision, but I do feel like 
this is no matter what happened when I moved, like it was I'm absolutely the right decision for me to go. Um, and cause I also knew that if I stayed another year, I might never have left. Beth didn't just want things to do on the weekends. She wanted people to do them with. And in towns of 4,000 people, that's really, really hard to do. When you combine that with wanting to be closer to family, there weren't many other options for Beth. So she moved. So my first job offer was from Charlotte, North Carolina, and I was like, good enough for me. Let's go to Charlotte. While the rurality of Arkansas and the low quality of life had sent Beth to Charlotte, she hadn't anticipated such a major change in what the teaching would look like. After two years of teaching in Arkansas, she had anticipated some challenges, but none like the ones she was faced with. I think that teaching like inner city schools just like, and this can happen. I've seen this happen to several teachers. It could just like destroy you if you do it too long. There's a set time period for most people, not everyone. So there are some people that are, there are some people that are really good at what they do and they know that inner city school is their heart and that is what they excel at and they do amazing at it. For most people, in my opinion, in teaching, that is not the case. There is a very special person that can teach in an inner city school setting for like, there's always that teacher has been there for like 30 years, and like they're known throughout the district and they rock it and they're amazing. Can you tell us why it was so stressful? Like what, because I get it. It's like special people yeah. like kindergarten teachers, only so many people can right. do it. The thing is, is with, especially in that area and in that environment, my experience was that the kids are so, put through so much on a daily basis that the only way they know to figure out that if you love them or you will hang around is to push you every single day and to test you every single day. So you come in like every day and there's always going to be that one kid that gives you lip. Like it doesn't matter. I, I learned very quickly, like I'm not built for it and that's okay. And there were kids there as well that I bonded with. It was just a lot fewer and far, more far between. And as additionally, the, that year we had the Charlotte riots, which were incredibly stressful. Um, Cause actually, sadly, the man who was shot, his children went to my high school. I had kids who would tell me who couldn't come or afraid to come to school because of that. And I also had kids who were illegal, illegally in the country. And the, the ICE was very prevalent that year, um, which is the immigration police. Um, but they were very prevalent that year. And like, we would have a kid that actually texted one of the teachers, like, I can't come to school right now. I, my dad got taken. My dad just got arrested by immigration. And like, and so oh they would God. be, there was a whole battle there. And like, she was afraid to leave the house. She thought something would get her. So there's just a lot of factors. There's just, you're not, when you, essentially when you become an inner city teacher, you're dealing with so many more problems that are outside of your control as a teacher that it's just, you have to be a superhero, like you do. The people that people that do it successfully and do it for a long time, you have to be a superhero because you're able to deal with and handle all of the things that you're going through as a teacher, as well as productively handle and nurture students who are going through even more scenarios than you are. And like, it's just, I admire those teachers so much. So much was stacked into that year and the compassion fatigue sucked Beth dry. On top of that, she still had to do all the normal things teachers have to do, you know, teach, grade, plan, manage, behavior, raise, test scores, cover best duty, blah, blah, blah. 
By the end of the first semester, Beth knew the school wasn't the place for her, and she decided to move. But the stressors she left behind still affect her to this day. I actually was diagnosed with PTSD from teaching there. So all of these stressors after you spent two years in Mariana, like building up, like, all right, I I have all these things, keep me healthy. And it's like, let's just knock all that down with all this insanity. But so you're like, all right, I'm out. And then from there, were you like, I need to be near my family? That's the next. Yeah, it's pretty much, I pretty much is like, I need to be near my family. Um, And I didn't know that I had been diagnosed. And part of it was, it might've been, I think that the PTSD, because I was like, PTSD isn't a thing you get from teaching. And they're like, uh, my, my, I remember my therapist being like, uh, yes, it is absolutely a thing. He's like, it's just being extended, being under a significant and extreme stress for long periods of time. And I was like, oh, like the past three years? She's like, yeah, like the past three years. Dang. Like, oh, because essentially, and you don't feel it until you're out of it. Um, and then I moved back to Cincinnati. I was teaching in a suburban, like kind of country school. It's like kind of a little rural, but not really. Mm-hmm. And it was great. I loved it. Super easygoing. Um, kids were wonderful. My uh, staff was wonderful. They knew what they were doing. I was at a school where people knew what they were doing. It was magic. Uh, <laughs> Before we kind of get into that, yeah. when you left Charlotte, you were obviously mm-hmm. having these stress headaches, all these things. But even then, you went and looked for more teacher jobs. You weren't looking to get out of teaching then. You were no. like, it's okay. I just need out of this environment and I'm going to go yeah. teach. It was, it was really, really was like, I, I still wanted to teach. Like I said, I still love the kids. And it had, had it just been the kids, I think that that's something I would have been able to work through. Um, I can't control being super far away with my family. I couldn't control what my, my, some of my coworkers were doing. I couldn't control what the environment of Charlotte was doing. Like it was, like it was yeah. just, it was too many things at once. So I was like, I still want to do this. I just want to be at a better school. And that new school was just what Beth needed to rejuvenate herself. It had its own challenges, sure, but overall, the stability, the lack of trauma that the students were bringing in every day, Beth could actually do her job because this is what suburban and well-resourced schools are typically like. You can do your job without burning out over it. Beth was happy. I was a floating teacher there, which I had never done that before. Uh, But actually, I got really good at it. And I actually really liked teaching there. Um, and that was actually where my teaching career ended. Uh, unfortunately, about, it's probably about March, my second year, the principal called me out into his office and was like, I just, hey, we need to talk about something. Like, I don't, you know, it's something that you've done as a teacher. We love you. We think you're doing a great job. You're really growing. But unfortunately, because they were opening this new academy that was going to be between these two counties where there was going to be co-teaching, which I don't really co-teaching you can say Um, that louder for people so they can hear because it's fair I don't like co-teaching really I think that like every teacher has their rhythm and it's it's hard to co-teach effectively Mm -hmm. you have to be working with someone that you really mesh well with and that's not usually the case that's Mm -hmm. like that is like lucky as heck if you get that Mm -hmm. so I didn't really want to co-teach but like essentially what he told me was because they're opening the academy they were they were anticipating a lot of the students going to that academy. So they were losing teaching spots at mm-hmm. my school. And, and the way it works in the teacher world, which is oh so fun, is the last teacher hired is the first teacher out. So I was losing, they were going to lose an English teaching spot. And so I basically went through several months of being like, oh, 
uh, I'm losing my job and I've done nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. And I, I had restarted so many times, I'd started at different schools so many times that it got to, I just decided by the end of the school year, I was like, at that point, I was like, I've restarted so many times at so many different schools. I don't want to do it again. Because when you have a good rhythm at a school and you really like find your groove and you connect with the other teachers finally, I just didn't want to do it again. I didn't want to have to restart and re, I don't want to restart at another school and have to rebuild those relationships. I don't want to co-teach, so I don't want to apply to this academy. I mean, I, I look very fondly on that school. It was, it was, it was a good, just like, there were stressful days and kids were dumb sometimes, but it was definitely, it rem- it's still something that I loved the kids and I loved my coworkers and mm-hmm. it was good. Yeah. And that's, and that's the reality for some teachers. And it's like, sometimes you have policies like that and teachers leave who, again, if you hadn't done that, they still would have been there. And it's just like, because someone did this thing, this is the butterfly effect of what happens. And one more teacher is out the door and not coming back. There's so much to unpack here. Ultimately, Beth cycled through three different schools before she left teaching, two of which were Title I, the final which was more suburban and advantaged. Each time she left, there was a gap where she had once been, and more principals like Monica McMurray had to find a way to fill the gaps. But to be clear, teachers aren't responsible for staying. It's not their job to fix systemic problems when it costs them their families and their happiness. But even then, when Beth did find a school close to home with less stress, it was ripped out from under her two years later. And after all the stress she had endured and mourning losing her job, she couldn't go back. She wouldn't go back. Since Beth lost her job due to expected declines in enrollment, that means she didn't necessarily leave a gap or a classroom. But she is one less person who's willing to do what it takes for students to learn and achieve, and that loss will be meted out somewhere else. I said we would have two teachers on tonight. Beth was the first. The second teacher is quite different from Beth. In fact, she's still teaching, but not necessarily in the way you expect. My name is Vanessa Jefferson. Um, I've been teaching, this is my seventh year. Um, I got into education as a young adult um, in high school. I started working around young kids in an after-school program. That's my exposure as far as being exposed to children. Um, I did not go to school for education um, because that was not my, um, that was not my goal or my passion at that time. And so once I went to school and I started realizing or people around me started realizing um, that children really gravitate towards me and I'm very great with working with children. Um, At this point, I'm already almost done with school. And so the traditional route would not have been the case as far as teaching. So um, by the time that I did graduate, I did realize that maybe teaching is my passion. And so I tried to go through a teaching program. Um, Originally, everything was great. I got accepted into the program. The only downfall was passing the praxis. For context, Vanessa was trying to go through a non-traditional teacher licensure system. She graduated from college without teaching credentials, so she went through an alternative pathway program. The program provided training and student teaching experience before placing her in a real classroom of her own. Unfortunately, Vanessa wasn't able to complete the program because she couldn't pass her praxis exam. Remember earlier when I said elementary teachers have to pass five exams to get a license? 
That was Vanessa's barrier to getting her teaching license. But let's talk a little bit about the Praxis situation, because as a high school teacher, I didn't know this, but how many Praxis tests do you have to pass to get a license to be a K-5 teacher? It's a lot. It's, it's a lot. So you have your core math, you have your core reading, and that's just Praxis 1. Um, and then Praxis 2, you have, again, math, reading, science, social studies, and writing. And so that's Praxis 2. And so if you choose to take every one, that's five for Praxis 2. That's five different tests, five different subjects. Each are um, about six, either $65 or $90 a piece. If you decide to take all of them in one setting, I believe it's like a hundred and something dollars. But just thinking about passing, I mean, not passing, like if you do reading Praxis 2 and that's $65, for one subject, you don't pass it. That's, you know, you can accumulate a lot of um, funding, um, you know, that you've spent just on a test, not even having a securing a job because a lot of, you know, you have to have a license to teach in a school. So if you don't have a job, how are you able to pay all this money for those tests? And your those alternative programs, like the one you were in and similar ones in the state, they are designed to fill gaps in high-need schools. So these are people that you're getting often because you cannot find enough teachers already, and now you're charging them to go mm -hmm. sometimes multiple times to get a license just so they can go teach when you're the one who needs more teachers to begin with. Yes, uh, yes, that is true. And you're testing them multiple times on the same subject, which is just more money for what? To prove that you know yes, it twice? Yes, that I did not. I did not understand um, that with practice one and practice two, you have to take a math and a reading twice. I'm just like, if you take it for practice one, why do you have to take it again for practice two on top of the other core subjects? So it is a lot. Um, it is very tedious, especially if they give you a time frame and then they say, oh, if you don't get it by this time frame, we're going to kick you out. That's just like very, that's pressure. Yeah. And as all teachers know, a standardized test is not the only way to measure that you can do something. For those who aren't teachers, the Praxis is one of many standardized teacher licensure exams. They're multiple choice, they're open response tests, you take them on pedagogical strategies and content knowledge like English, math, science, social studies, whatever. But since Vanessa couldn't pass hers to get a license, the program she was in couldn't get her a teaching job. Vanessa, needing a job and running out of time, ultimately had to leave the program to find a job on her own. She managed to find one in an elementary school that agreed to take her on for a year while she worked on passing her exams. So during the summer, they did place me at Baseline Elementary, which I love to this day, still love them. They, mm -hmm. They've been wanting me to come back ever since. Um, but because it was, it's, a, it's a district school, you have to be licensed. And I didn't get licensed that year because I couldn't pass mm -hmm. and they weren't paying. I even asked my principal, which I still remember to this day, as my principal, if he could pay for my practice so that I could take it. Just mm -hmm. And he was like, your program is not paying for it? And I was like, no. But once that summer came and they couldn't rehire me because I wasn't licensed. And so ATC couldn't place me anywhere. They didn't have anything lined up for me. So it was almost like I was out in like la la land, just with no, 
um, confirmed jobs. So I'm like, well, now I got to go look for my own job. And luckily, I got hired at ESTEM, which I didn't know anything about ESTEM at that time. For context, ESTEM is one of several charter schools in Little Rock. In Arkansas, charter schools don't require their teachers to have licensure. It gives them some flexibility for hiring and lets teachers like Vanessa still teach. But charters are different than public schools. The compensation is different. There are no unions. There are all sorts of waivers for working conditions. As Vanessa is about to describe her experiences in the two different schools, one district and one charter were extremely different. Well, I know for a fact the charter and district is totally different. Mm -hmm. um, you have so many state tests. And then, of course, you got to make sure that you are abiding by, you know, any regulations that the school may be have may have. Um, but as far as my strength from working at a district school, it would be getting the required trainings. Um, because now at Chartered, I, I know that I don't get to go to the trainings. They may be online, but when I worked for Baseline, we actually went to the district building and you got the hands-on training. And then also I learned all the acronyms behind you know, the teaching times, I learned all of that then. Um, it was a struggle for me just because I did not know a lot of the, like, terminology. Now I'm a pro. I can sit at a table. I don't care who's at the table. Whatever we're talking about, we can talk about self-contained. We can talk about um, just anything. And I'm able to um, deliver um, at the table versus my first year. I would sit at a table. I'm like, what is everybody talking about? I was lost. Yeah. I didn't know what I needed for a classroom. Um, I kind of had a coach is, at the school that helped me. I had two coaches. I had a math coach and I had a reading coach at the school, and they are phenomenal. To this day, I still am in contact with them. Um, they have helped me through all types of resources that I needed. Vanessa still remembers her first year at the district school and the struggles she had, but ultimately, she says that year was marked with success for her students. School itself was not terrible. My kids were not like the ideal behavior kids. Uh, the kids kind of gravitate toward me, which is what I said at the beginning. Like, And so um, I didn't have a problem. I think I had more problems connecting with my team um, because I was a new teacher and they were experienced. And so um, it was my worst year on a team. I, I, I would never forget... My team, my team was not supportive. Um, they were best besties. And you know how if you know something and you used to work with somebody, it's hard to, you know, bring somebody new in that doesn't know anything. Mm -hmm. Every five seconds, I'm like, what are you doing today? What are like, what's, you know? And so I think I learned by my mistakes of looking up to other people to plan for me. Mm -hmm. or to get things together for me. Um, and so as far as, you know, a struggle that was a struggle for me is lesson planning um, because that's something that was not taught. It set the foundation for ESTEM. So by the end of my year at Baseline, I was like, I felt top tier. Like mm -hmm. I literally felt like I had conquered a lot. I learned a lot. My brain was a sponge and I soaked in a lot of knowledge from all of my, I mean, my principal was sending me to trainings like monthly. It was like, that also helped because I also taught all subjects. Despite all the training, despite all the hard work, despite all the growth, 
it didn't matter. Vanessa couldn't stay at baseline because she hadn't passed her Praxis exam. As a result, she had to find a new job, and she went to the charter school E-STEM that we mentioned earlier. When I got to E-STEM, I taught, I taught at E-STEM for two years. Um, my first year, I did um, fourth grade English, ELA, and social studies. And then I took my same kids, and I looped with them to fifth grade, and I did English and reading and social studies. And so my first year at ESTEM, they gave me a first year teacher. So you do math and reading for the same group and your other teacher, the other partner teacher has your kids and teaches them math and science. Okay. And we switch the kids where they're able to get all the subjects that way. So my partner teacher who never taught before taught the math and science piece to my kids. And so I, I was that trainer that trained them to be who they were. I mean, to like help them kind of find their way. I wouldn't say my partner teachers. My partner teachers weren't great coaches. Um, we struggled making a connection. Um, I remember my principal sending us to lunch to get to know each other at the end of the year. So it was a rough year. It was a rough year. But my partner teacher, my first partner teacher that I had at ESTEM, Mm-hmm. Um, she ended up getting nominated for <laughs> teacher of the year the next year after she worked with me. Um, so clearly yeah. you had an impact somehow. Yes. And this, and that was one reason why I left, um, my second year, they had me doing a lot of, they had me helping a lot of new teachers, um, but they were not putting me in placement. Um, to in a role of um, administration. They were using me for admin to help, you know, with struggling teachers, um, but they were not putting me in the place with the title, if that makes sense. Do you think that was related to your licensure status or do you think that was another issue? You, you know, I've thought about that. Um, I, never, I will never know. Yeah. I will never know. Yeah. Were you still pursuing licensure at this point or had you pretty much settled in because at East Dam it's a charter. You don't have to be fully licensed is my understanding. Um, I did not look into it anymore. I kind of, cause I had put my all into it when I was, and then I was kind of heartbroken when I found out that they dropped me. Um, so I didn't want to have anything to do with the licensure at that time. It was a kind of like a hurdle, a struggle point that I did not want to look at or, you know, um, think back on, think back on. Um, but after that, um, after that, um, being at that school, I love that school. Even now, I don't have anything negative to say about that school whatsoever. Despite her success at ESTEM, Vanessa didn't feel like she had a chance at getting promoted, and she wasn't interested in staying somewhere where she couldn't grow. And honestly, it was probably her lack of a license that caused it. Frustrated with the circumstances, she left that charter for the only place she could go without a license. Another charter school. This one is called Friendship. So my first year um, working for that school, uh, my intentions, the reason why I went to the school was to be in a a leadership role um, because over the last couple of years, I've gotten a lot of praise in the classroom. Um, People would come and see me teach. Um, I was the role model in the school. I was always the go-to person in the school. Um, I mean, I've never not been at a school and a principal not 
had someone come to my room to watch me teach. Um, I've been posted online. Um, and this is me not having a teaching license. Um, but um, it never stopped me, you know, or stopped my shine in the classroom. Um, I love teaching. It's, it's something that I found to be my passion. Um, and I've only, you know, learned that through my experience of teaching. When I first started out teaching, I didn't, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't, I kind of just found, found my way, you know, and let myself be open to learning new things. But when I left um, from, from East Dam, I went to this school in hopes of being an admin. I have people now who are waiting for me, somebody who don't have a licensure, to be principal because they want to work with me. They want to work under me. In case anyone here is thinking, wow, she sounds amazing, but does she have receipts, like proof? Just hold on. Vanessa has plenty of receipts. I started out teaching uh, reading and social studies. About October, my first year there, my co-teacher who teaches them math and science ended up um, getting fired are getting laid off so they could no longer fulfill their position they did not rehire anybody to teach them math and science so I was stuck and and here's the kicker here's the kicker this was the school's this was going to be the school's first year getting a essence score and the essence score is when the school is graded from an a to an l and so um Little old me coming from Little Rock to find love. Nobody knowing me. I'm not in the community. The parents don't know me. The kids don't know me. They're like, who are you? And here I am. I have the responsibility of the school on my shoulders for a letter grade. And I went from only teaching, reading, and social studies for the last few years to now I have to teach all subjects. They're not replacing anybody. Um, and during a pandemic, this was during a pan, this is pandemic time. Wait, so um, this last year? This was, yes, this was last school Whoa, year. Oh, okay. I had 36 kids, um, third graders. I was the only teacher and I taught them all subjects. And over the summer, it was announced. It's in. It's you can look it up now. It's in the news. It's been posted. The state has posted it. The school has ranked top number one in their city. Um, the kids have ranked top ten percent in the state. Um, and so they score eighty percent on the ACT Aspire. Um, thanks to me with no license. <laughs> Y'all. You can look it up. Actually, you don't have to. I'll link the article in the description below. To be clear, Vanessa taught third grade. She was the only third grade teacher in the school. She had 36 kids in her classroom, 36 eight-year-olds, all day, every day. And to be clear, school report cards from the Arkansas Department of Education only take test scores from third grade and up. Vanessa's school only had kindergarten through second grade every year before she got there. They only added third grade when she got there and she was the only third grade teacher, which means her class was the only one measured to contribute to the evaluation. Meaning Vanessa's charter school is only in the top 10 in the state for literacy because of Vanessa during a pandemic. And she doesn't have a teaching license. And you didn't even get to plan for it. It was just like, hey, it's October. We lost the other teacher. You get extra subjects now. 
Yes, I, yes, absolutely. Nothing changed. Um, I even had to do tutoring. I, I did all of it and travel, travel too, because I don't stay in Palm Bluff. So I also was traveling. So early mornings, um, I believe I was getting up at like 4.30ish to make it. Um, so yeah, it was a rough year, um, but they came out on top. But I kind of yes. want to discuss, and this may be where it gets a little sadder, um, not anything on you, but, you know, not getting leadership positions at ESTEM, even though you were constantly mentoring people or mm-hmm. having to travel to a whole other city for a job. Whereas if you did have a license, um, you I wouldn't have to do that. Yes, yeah. you're absolutely correct. So how do you feel about that? How these tests, which clearly do not measure your teaching ability, making you have to make these decisions and having to do things so differently? Well, um, I will say that um, it is very, it is, it is very stressful because even now, even though I work in Palm Love, even though I've been, you know, named as teacher of the year, that is not my ideal um, location just because um, it is in a, it's a, 45 hour drive. And so had I've had my license, I would not be there. Even this year, I, even though I had gotten teacher of the year last year, my intentions were not to return, but because I do not have my license, I can't get a job locally. And so, um, right now, as of right now, it is one of my biggest fears because the school year we're almost mid year and I, I can't get another job anywhere. I've, I've been to like three local charters. So where do I go from here? So now I feel stuck um, per se um, for not having my licensures. Like most people, Vanessa wants to be home with her family when she's not at work, but she can't teach in a traditional school because she doesn't have a license, even though her kids' test scores are top tier for growth, literally. And ultimately, not having a license and having to work in a less desirable environment, remember, she taught 36 third graders at once during a pandemic, may contribute to whether or not she decides to stay in teaching. But she has been promoted to STEM coordinator. She's seen elementary education at all levels and in all subjects. She's worked in so many different schools, but without her license, her options are significantly more limited than a teacher who does have their license even though her students have some of the best test scores in the state. How is that fair? And how long can we expect her to put up with the system before she finds something else to do, something that isn't determined by her own score on a multiple choice test? A lot of people are not, and I mean, like, are not good test takers. Take me for example. Mm-hmm. I am very knowledgeable for teaching. My kids just scored 80% in the state. And here I am not licensed. So it's not that I don't understand the curriculum, but here I am in the school don't even know I'm not licensed. So like the teachers that I work with, they don't even know I'm not licensed. They think I'm licensed. Mm-hmm. And you won't, you don't know the difference. You don't know the difference between someone who's licensed and who's not licensed. The skill, it doesn't determine that. Mm-hmm. And so I just hate that the test, the trauma behind it is tedious. Those questions, there's like a hundred questions. It's not like, I mean, it's not like you're, you're taking the SAT. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. There's no other way to say it. So what are the things we learned today? What are things that we can do? 
Anyone else here fired up to look into teacher licensure test policy? I think that's a great place to start because Vanessa's story isn't unique. Unfortunately, it's all too common, especially for teachers of color and for teachers whose first language isn't English. Teacher licensure tests overwhelmingly bar teachers of color and ELL teachers from entering the classroom. And if Vanessa hadn't been so creative and determined to teach, she probably would have found another career by now. Not everyone is as committed as Vanessa, and we lose so many potential teachers thanks to these licensure tests. This episode was all about what it was like to find teachers to fill vacancies. We learned about the different tactics school leaders take to make sure there are teachers in classrooms for kids. We learned about how even when you finally find the right spot, you can still lose it. And we learned that a piece of paper, quite frankly, doesn't prove anything. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode on teacher pay. We already touched on this topic in our second episode and interview with Dr. Caitlin Anderson, but this time we'll be looking at it from the teacher's perspective. How much money does it take to keep a teacher in the classroom? And when is the workload so great that the pay just doesn't matter, no matter how high it gets? If you found this episode interesting and enjoyed it, please give us a rating and a review. The most important element of these stories is the lived experiences of teachers and education stakeholders. To share your perspective or to give feedback on this episode, please leave a voicemail or text message at 334-472-4019. You can also send a message through our website, passiontoprogress.com slash contact, or direct message our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. This has been Green Apple Pod, hosted by Jessica Enderlin Nadsom and produced by Ruth Amundsen. If you would like to follow along and learn more, please subscribe to our host organization, Passion to Progress, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. We are available for listening through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean.